As many of you know, the Elder Board uh, gave me a wonderful gift of a six-week sabbatical this summer, early June to to mid-July. It wrapped up two weeks ago. It was just a wonderful uh, gift to me and my family, very uh, re-energizing, refocusing on Jesus, remembering that He is really good, and remembering that I'm, I'm not Jesus. It's good to keep those things straight. There is a God, and it's not me. And things go on when I'm, when I'm not, you know, working. Things go on when you're asleep even. He's still God. He's still watching over the world. It's a really good reminder that we are not God. And on my sabbatical, one very memorable part was an eight-day trip uh, to Paris and London that my mom took us on. And we got to see some amazing museums, cathedrals, culture. By culture, I mean chocolate croissants. Um, <laughs> Uh, I did a lot of reading and travel guides. I read about every page of Rick Steves' Guide to Paris, and I emerged with lots of tips and tricks to manage the crowds. That's the thing in Paris. The metro area of Paris is about 12 million people. Annually, they see about 23 million visitors. Can you imagine? So it's about avoiding the crowds. One of my favorite spots uh, was this. It's uh, a place called Saint-Chapelle. It was built as a reliquy to house the supposed crown of thorns the king of France found, built in the 13th century, 1200s, finished in 1248, 6,500 square feet of stained glass. Well, check it out. If you wanted to to wait in line to get to Saint-Chapelle, it's about a two-hour line. People snake all around the place. But if you know and you have the museum pass, you walk right to the front of the line. You say, hey, suckers. I didn't, I didn't say that out loud, <laughs> but I kind of thought it. <laughs> oh, I know. I know how to get in the front door. Right? Yeah. Here's the thing. I, I'm talking about wisdom from the Bible today, and sometimes when we think about godly wisdom, we think it's kind of like tips and tricks to get ahead of the line, tips and tricks to win at the game of life. And I want to try to convince you today that, that biblical wisdom is much different than that, more than just steps to get ahead. Perhaps you think of wisdom like something out of a math book, like an equation. Maybe you, uh, you insert obedience on this side of the equation, and you get blessing on that side of the equation. Uh, it, the problem with that is, first of all, it's not biblical. And secondly, uh, things don't ever work out the way we want them to work out. And when we don't get the blessing that we wanted, we might say, well, what's wrong? Is it, was it something wrong with me and my faith, or something wrong with God? I thought we had a deal here, God. I I obeyed, and you didn't do what I wanted. The problem with that is this is not biblical wisdom. This is manipulation of God. This is trying to control God, and we might even call it paganism. I do these sacrifices, I do these services, these ceremonies, and I get what I want from the deity. That's paganism, and that's not biblical Christianity, biblical faith. Do any of you remember these commercials from Fidelity Investments with the green line? Here's this guy's financial advisor. They've just adjusted his portfolio, and he now has a green line to walk on to go to retirement at the designated time. He's tempted. He walks by, and he sees some sports cars. Oh, maybe I should buy a Cobra, maybe a Mustang. No, stay on the green line. Oh, thanks, lady. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to meet my goals. I get this green line to walk on, and everything is perfect. That is also not biblical wisdom. Uh, it's not just steps to follow to get to our goals, especially that we be prosperous and have all kinds of you know, financial resources to, to retire when we want to. That's not biblical wisdom. 
Let's return to my story about being in Paris. I was so grateful to have knowledge, tips, and tricks to navigate that city. We had a wonderful time, but I wasn't there to show off my skill as a travel agent or a knowledgeable person that can read Rick Steves and regurgitate it to my travel group. I was there because of relationship. I was there to enjoy time with my family. And imagine if I had been a taskmaster saying, we're going to see 10 sites today. I don't care how many calluses. I don't care how many blisters are on your feet. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to push through. We've got to see it. Meanwhile, I'm spouting out facts and information. That would not be a very fun trip. That may remind you of some of your family trips in the summer. <laughs> I know some people whose parents are both teachers, and they said, every summer we had to go here, 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 and see all these places and learn. But that's not fun. That's tyranny. <laughs> I want my family life to magnify our relationship as family, not to show off my skill at life. And likewise, biblical wisdom is an invitation to a relationship with God, an invitation to a relationship with God, not just a way to game the system. Sometimes uh, we can think that the Bible is just rules to follow. Here's a quote from a pastor named Sky Jatani. He's an alliance guy. I like Sky quite a bit. He says, We may reduce the Bible from God's revelation of himself, which is what it is, God's self-revelation, uh, into merely a revelation of divine principles for life. And we're not the first to fall into this subtle trap. The Pharisees had memorized the entire Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. They'd parsed every command, extracted every principle, and delineated every instruction it contained. But their mastery of Scripture had not resulted in actually knowing God or recognizing Him when He stood right in front of them. Jesus said to these leaders, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me so that you may have life. Wisdom is not what you know, but who you know, and how you posture your life around the Creator and the lover of your soul. Wisdom is a proper ordering of our life around God and how He's revealed Himself to us. We can't address the idea of wisdom from the Bible without this key concept you see a lot, which is called the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be wise, the Bible says you ought to understand this concept, the fear of the Lord. Does it mean being scared of God? Does it mean thinking he's going to zap me if I get out of line? That's not what the Bible says. I might summarize the fear of the Lord as having a right relationship with God, putting myself in a proper relationship to God, knowing who he is and knowing who I am in relationship to him. Again, from Sky Jatani, he talks about this phrase, having a beautiful terror. He says, our inclination is to emphasize one side of this paradox or the other. We either view God as beautiful and unthreatening, which leads to casual engagement. He's beautiful, but he's not threatening. Oh, he's my buddy. He's my homeboy. Um, and God is amazing, and he's beautiful, but he also wants to threaten the very core of us. He wants to undo all of our false assumptions about ourselves and about the world. He wants to threaten the very core of us, and that's the best thing for us. So either we view God as beautiful and unthreatening, or we see the Almighty as terrifying and undesirable, which leads to no engagement at all. Beautiful terror. Have you ever seen a selfie stick? Maybe you even own one. Maybe if you don't own one, don't tell me, but you, selfie sticks. We're going to go in front of uh, the Louvre Museum or whatever, and we're going to take a selfie of me and my my friend, and we got this stick sticking out here. Do you know that they're being banned in more and more places? And I'm glad for two reasons. Number one, they're obnoxious. Uh, 
people are, are blocking the view because they got this stick here and you're trying to get by on a narrow road with it. They got to get their perfect picture. And the other half of the 23 million tourists are waiting for them to take their picture and they're not moving either until they can, you know, get the smell. Oh, I got to try it again. I got to get a better angle. Um, so they're obnoxious because they create lines and problems. They're also being uh, outlawed because they're, they're dangerous. Did you know that selfies kill five times more people than sharks? I saw it on the internet. It must be true. <laughs> but here's why. Uh, let's back up just a little more and get that photo, right? Maybe you've seen these guys before. <laughs> you know, Grand Canyon. It's the canyon of the Yellowstone in the top right there, too. Selfies are dangerous. If I'm standing in front of the Grand Canyon, I ought to have a beautiful terror, shouldn't I, of this amazing gaping chasm. I should respect what a 6,000-foot fall will do to my body, even as I'm, you know, reverently amazed at its grandeur. Uh, the, the key missing from this illustration about the fear of the Lord being like the Grand Canyon, though, is the relationship element. I can't have a relationship with the Grand Canyon. It's an inanimate thing. But uh, God, we ought to have a beautiful terror of God. He's beautiful. He's also threatening to everything. <laughs> and it's a wonderful kind of terror, <laughs> if that makes sense. It's, it is a paradox. In your notes, I've defined the fear of the Lord this way. Reverential trust resulting from a loving relationship with Yahweh, the God of the Bible. So wisdom is an invitation to a relationship, not a set of rules. An invitation to a relationship. This summer, Pastor Nathan is calling our series God With Us as we look at the Old Testament from a bird's eye view uh, and, and see some of the key themes that are preparing the way, laying the foundation for the Messiah, for Jesus to arrive on the planet, God himself walking this earth. And in the fall, we're going to be studying the life of Jesus. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. One of the key themes in the Old Testament and New Testament is this, that we were created, we were made for relationship. We're invited from page one of the Bible, Adam and Eve walking in the garden, talking to their creator. From the first page to the last page of the Bible, Genesis 22, the spirit and the bride say, come, come to the wedding feast of the lamb. Come and relate to your God. We're made for relationship. And so biblical wisdom is largely about establishing and maintaining a loving and close relationship with the one who created us. You might ask, that sounds kind of simple. Can we really boil it down to that? Is that really, you know, the key to wisdom in the Bible? I think it's one of the keys, and here's why. When you think of the Bible talking about the good life, what is the good life? What is life when things are going well? What's the blessed life? It's when we're in the presence of God, when we're in the presence of his people. We read things like, in your temple, on your holy hill, among your people, loving and obeying you. Here's a few examples. Psalm 16 is a great one. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Apart from God, there's nothing good that's going to happen. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You've made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Joy in the presence of God. Eternal pleasures at your right hand. Or Psalm 23, that famous shepherd psalm. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. God is with me. I often tell people in a tough circumstance, it doesn't say, you rescue me out of the thing with your helicopter and your laser beams. You destroy my enemies and you get me out of there. No, we go through tough times, don't we? But God is there with us. The presence of God makes all the difference. Psalm 27, the Lord's my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Not simply because there was great architecture at the temple, right? But because that's where the presence of God was. I mean, the people of God gathered. He wants to seek God's presence. We also see in the, in the wisdom literature that to be away from God's presence is anguish. Psalm 22, do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Or, or a picture of an animal, as a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? So beginning to end, we were created for this relationship of close, intimate fellowship with the one who made us. There's a problem, though. Here's the other, the next thing that comes in we see in the Bible is sin. Sin blocks our fellowship with God. We simply cannot be near God. Left to our own devices, left to ourselves, we won't even want to want God. From birth, we have this natural inclination away from him. Romans 3 paints this picture pretty clearly. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. And that's why it's so powerful that Jesus not only is the way to escape eternal separation from God in hell, which we celebrated in communion, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross means you and I can become righteous, though by ourselves we are, we are unrighteous, like Romans 3 says. Jesus is, is, is our escape from eternal punishment. He's also our wisdom. He becomes wisdom for us. He lived that kind of perfect life of intimacy with God that we could never live. And we'll hear more about that in just a little bit. But first, I've invited Terry Gervera to come and read to us what will be kind of our key text for today. We're going to look at Psalm 63 briefly. It's a psalm written by David, who was wise because he had an intimate, close relationship with his creator. Let's hear Psalm 63. Green light? Yes, there we go. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing, my lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Awesome. Thank you, Terry. If you read the inscription at the top of that psalm, it says it was written by David. It also says that it was written when he was in the desert or the wilderness of Judah. And the context is pretty interesting to, to think about uh, because he wrote this while his son Absalom had overthrown his government, uh, committed treason, and about a bunch of other terrible things. And David and his people marched out of the city ashamed. I'm sure he felt like a huge failure as a father and as a leader. And that's when David wrote this psalm. 
And I might just ask, as we try to make this personal for us today, what might a wilderness experience look like for you in your life? Maybe you're in a wilderness right now. Maybe you've experienced wilderness times because of a failure uh, resulting from poor choices that you made. Uh, Maybe a wilderness time comes on because someone else made poor choices that hurt you and, and brought that on. Other times we can't pinpoint quite why we're in the wilderness. We just know it's really dry and we're really thirsty and we really want to touch from God. It is encouraging to read the Psalms and to know that there is company. You're not alone. David was pretty brutally honest about all of his emotions, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, It helps me know others have felt in the past and in the present. People are also feeling the way that I have felt and the way that I'm feeling. And we all have experienced suffering and know what it's like to suffer, including David, this king after God's own heart. It's also really cool to note that in his time of suffering, in his time of wilderness, David is driven towards God, not away from God. He's driven towards God, not away from God. And so my first thought about this psalm here is that David is desperate for the presence of God. Words like, I earnestly seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you. And why does David feel this way? Verse 2 says he's experienced God's power and God's glory. He has an experience with God. He knows the character of God. And not only has he seen the beauty of God in in the created world, places like Psalm 19 talk about that, or Psalm 8, but also he's seen the presence of God in the sanctuary. He's seen the presence of God with the gathered assembly of the people of God. That's why it's good to be together. He's seen God's power and God's glory, and he wants more of God. And I love verse 3. It is a wonderful verse. He says, your love is better than life. God's love is better than life. He's experienced it, and he says, I need more of the Lord. And he says God satisfies his deepest longings. Twice here in this psalm, he uses the imagery of being satisfied by food and drink. And I love that because I love food and I love drink. Don't you? I love food. Several spots in the Bible we hear these things like, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 81 says, you would be fed with the finest wheat, with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. I like sweet things. I would like that. Jesus said in John 4, my my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. But a relationship with God is often referred to as a a satisfying thing, uh, satisfying our hunger and our thirst. I remember being on backpacking trips in Yosemite when I was in high school with my youth group. Get so hungry of the, you know, so tired of the freeze-dried food you have backpacking. We just fantasize about where we're going to go to eat when we get back to civilization. We weren't very creative. It's usually Taco Bell. <laughs> what am I going to order there? Oh, I've been reading the book Unbroken, the Louis Zamperini story. He was on a raft for 43 days in the Pacific, hardly any food to eat, literally starving. And he was known for, then and also later in in the Japanese prison camps, he was known for telling stories about his mom's cooking. He would describe how she'd make a meal and the spices and the things. And they said, we didn't have any food, but it made us feel not quite as hungry for a while. He was talking about imagining this food. I mentioned I was at the the youth camping trip last couple days, and we're down at the Umpqua, it's 95 degrees, and we came back to camp, and there was these ice-cold bottles of water and ice-cold Gatorade and... Oh, I just love to be satiated by food and drink. And that's kind of what David's experience has been. God satisfies his deepest needs. He's desperate for God to be in the presence of God. 
See, we're, we're free to run away from God. We're free to, to hide from his presence, ignore his Holy Spirit's calling. But who would want that? God's the source of blessing. He's the source of life and peace and joy and all kinds of other wonderful things. I feel like when we, when we do, because we all do, take cho- the choice to, to sin, to walk away from him, I think it's kind of like temporary insanity. Who would really want to do this thing that's going to harm them, harm others? Sin always hurts something. It always breaks something. Uh, temporary insanity. So we want to draw near to God and stay near God. And when we do sin, to repent and say, no, 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 I want to come back. I want to live near God. I'm desperate for his presence. Again, from Sky Chitani, he says, If our visions of God were enlarged and corrected, we would see his unrivaled beauty, grasp his unconditional love, perceive his radiant glory, and experience his untainted goodness. And then it would become obvious that he is much more than a deity to simply tolerate or a device to employ. Not just coming to God to get his stuff. I want to come to God to get his stuff. In other words, God would cease to be how we acquire our treasure. He actually would become our treasure. The goal of of life is God. The goal of life isn't stuff or doing God's stuff. The goal is God. And so God can become our treasure. And he certainly was David's treasure. And David's desire for the presence of God makes him a, a worshiper of God. He was a true worshiper of God. We see verbs in this psalm like, I want to behold you in your sanctuary. I want to glorify you, to praise you, to lift up my hands to you, to sing praise to you, to sing in the shadow of your wings, to rejoice in you, to glory in you. And worship is the natural response of being in God's presence. And we can express emotion in all kinds of different ways but a genuine encounter with god is going to affect the whole person that has to affect the whole person think of your emotions when you respond to different things like say your favorite sports team winning the championship you're going to be kind of emotional about that you're going to express different kinds of emotions or say you're at the end of an amazing concert your favorite band just finished the last chord and you have a feeling an emotional response to that or say you learn that In-N-Out Burger is finally coming to Roseburg. I had a much better response first hour to that. I think I had more Californians that were in the service first hour. But cl- clearly they were motivated by food and drink like I was. You're going to be excited, right? Or what if someone that you love returns after a long absence? Or if you get the acceptance letter to the school you've been dreaming about attending? We might have a lot of different kinds of responses, including shouting, applauding, dancing, singing, whatever. But for some reason, we Western Christians, at least the ones that I hang out with, feel they have to have a very British stiff upper lip when it comes to feeling emotion about God. And I can only do two accents, Transylvanian or Scottish. So it's going to be somewhere between those two. But somehow we feel like, oh, the King of Kings has entered the building and freed me from eternal slavery to sin and death. Cheerio, jolly good. And that's all that we can do, like all we can muster. We can't engage. But if we get the gospel that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin on the cross, guilty of all of our sins, so that we could become the righteousness of God, that moves me. I'm moved by that. We ought to be moved in some way, and not just the frozen chosen. And I'm not talking about a phony, whipped-up emotion or a fervor that looks to impress others with how spiritual we are. But if we get the gospel, it, there ought to be something that moves inside of us. And I'm talking about much more than just a Sunday morning experience, 90 minutes on a Sunday, 75 here. And I'm also talking about more than just worship music. 
Worship is all the ways that we respond to God's character and work. Remember what the Apostle Paul said our spiritual worship was. He said, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That sounds pretty engaging, pretty all in, (laughs) not one toe under the water. My whole body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So how is your worship? Are you a worshiper of God? David was also determined to draw near God. He couldn't get enough of God's presence. He says, I'm going to seek. I'm going to remember you even as I'm on my bed, you know, in and out of sleep. I'm going to cling to you. He says in verse 7, you are my help. And this help isn't like uh, God, uh, we do 90% and God does the last 10% kind of help. It's not like the kind of help I give my father-in-law on house projects. He does all the work and I hold the flashlight. (laughs) I'm really good at holding the flashlight, by the way, and I can get him other tools. I know a wrench from the screwdriver, and, but he does the work, and I just I, I help. That's not the kind of helper David is saying. He's saying kind of more like, help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. He's our only hope in life and death. David's desperate for God's deliverance, and so he's running towards God, not away from God. It kind of reminds me, his desperation kind of reminds me of Moses, Moses has been asked to lead the people of Israel, and he says to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. I'm only going to go, God, if you're going with us. I'm so desperate for your presence. I can't do it without you. And then David's really confident that God is going to deliver him. He says in verses 9 and 10, he talks about the people seeking his life being destroyed and uh, becoming the food for dogs. I kind of think of El Huapo, you will die like dogs. But, you know, that seems weird. Why are we, this is a nice psalm for eight verses. Suddenly he's talking about death and destruction and dying, being fed to jackals. I think David is just really confident. God is hearing me. He's going to deliver me. He's going to rescue me from my foes in his time, in his way, because I've got experience with God. He's a delivering God. It does rescue us. It's based on a real experience with a real God. I do wonder, though, why this the this experience of David, this this longing of David, uh, so seldom feels like me or like us. How, how often do I feel like I just can't get enough of God? I want more and more and more of him. And I wonder if one of the reasons we don't have that longing to draw near God is because we just don't want to put any effort into it. <laughs> it takes time to seek God. It does take effort. And for many years, I kind of uh, strayed away from the idea of, of seeking God requiring effort because I said, no, we're about grace, and we want to be people of grace. We serve a God of grace who loves us not because of our work, but because of his work. We celebrate that every week. God's work, not mine. The opposite of grace is works, trying to work for God's approval. But the opposite of grace isn't effort. It does take effort to draw near to God. It takes time. It takes avoiding noise and distraction. And we are terrible at that, aren't we? Shutting out the noise and the distraction. We buy devices that beep at us all day long so we can say, I got none. Someone wanted to look at my picture. Great quote from C.S. Lewis. It would find that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
Why doesn't this correspond to our daily experience? Because we can't even long for God on our own. We need his help to seek him. Remember Romans 3, none of us naturally seeks God. We need to stop trying so hard to be good to let, and to let Jesus change us. Instead, to, to surrender to him, to ask us to give a desire for more of him. One of the first steps of that is, is baptism, uh, of obeying and loving Jesus. And I'm delighted, I'll tell you today, mark your calendars, today at 4 p.m., River Forks Park, we're doing two baptisms, Pam Cook and Beverly Roberts. And I talked to Beverly last week, and I said, why, why now? Why is this the time for baptism? She says this, I just want to give myself fully to Jesus. That's a pretty good answer. So we're going to dunk her in the water briefly at 4 o'clock today at River Forks. You're all invited. Pam said, make an invitation to everyone to come and see. 4 o'clock down by the river there at the Forks. We also need to be in community with other Christ followers who are desperate for him. If you are the most spiritual person that you know, you may be in trouble. <laughs> we need to be around others who are pulling us onward, who are desperate and passionate for God and hungry for him. That's why we need community. We had our home group, home group connect today at 1045. If you're here, you missed it. That's okay. You could still mark home groups on your card. We'll try to line you up with an appropriate home group that meets uh, at a time and, and a location you can make it to during the week. That's one of a lot of different ways we try to get people connected with others who are heading the same way in the journey. So you can mark your cards if you're interested in learning about groups. They start up next month, most of them. But again, we can't be wise on our own. We need Jesus to be wisdom for us. Paul says Jesus is our wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, uh, Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. We cannot be wise on our own. Jesus showed us wisdom. The kind of life he lived was a life of close dependence and intimacy with his Father. He was often found praying in lonely places, right? He had a huge dependency upon his Heavenly Father. And if Jesus needed intimacy with the Father, how much more do we need it? Wisdom looks like the way Jesus lived his life on this earth. And some of you might be thinking, this all sounds nice, this intimacy with God, this closeness, but what about all the laws God gave? Isn't he a lawgiver? Isn't the rules the way we get made right with God? What about like the Ten Commandments? Those are pretty famous. I will tell you what, none of you can keep even one of the Ten Commandments perfectly. You might say, oh, but you know, I've never taken the Lord's name in vain. You know, so look at me. Well, have you really positively done everything you can to uphold God's name God's reputation? Have you always spoken and reflected his reputation everywhere you've gone in every word and deed? No. You can't even keep one of God's rules. The rules are made to drive us in dependence to God saying, I can't do it. I can't be righteous on my own. The rules do not mediate the relationship with God, and we were created for relationship with God. So in conclusion, as the worship team comes for our closing song, for our offering, a few thoughts. You were made for relationship with God, and it's a really amazing thing to live life fully surrendered to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. I can make you absolutely no guarantees about what that looks like for your life, for your retirement account, for you getting what you want in your daily circumstances, but I can tell you it's the best place to be. It's the best kind of life to live. It's not a green line, but there are some amazing people on the journey to, to experience it with. Maybe today you're in a place where, like Beverly, say, you say, I want to give myself 
fully to Jesus. I've never done that before. I've kind of put my toe in the water, but I've never become that living, full in, fully in the pool, you know, sacrifice. I want to fully offer my life to Jesus. Like we sang before uh, communion, I surrender. I give you everything. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe today's the day you want to say, God, I'm sorry for making a mess of my life. I'm sorry for breaking your laws. At least one of them, probably hundreds of them. Uh, I, I want to thank you for the, for the cross, that communion thing we remembered, the cross. And please come into my life and make me a new person. Maybe you're ready to do, do that today. We're going to have a prayer team come forward as we sing our closing song. And they'll be, they'll be willing to pray with you. They, they'd be delighted to pray with you about receiving Jesus, giving yourself fully to him. Maybe you are trying to walk that green line. And maybe you are trying to climb a ladder to God saying, God, aren't you impressed with my obedience? I'd say, get off the ladder. He's not impressed, first of all. Second of all, you're not going to get very far. You're going to fall off. And thirdly, he came down to us. That's the good news. He came down. We didn't have to climb a ladder to him. Fourthly, maybe it's time for you in, in the wilderness to draw near to God and stop, you know, thumbing your nose at God and saying, I'm tired of this. I put in my time. I've served. I've done the right things. You haven't given me what I want, so I'm leaving and I'm bitter. Maybe it's time to say, I'm, I'm going to draw near to God. I'm going to thirst for him. I'm going to trust him. What I've seen in the scriptures, in the lives of others, maybe in my own life, I'm going to draw near to God. God, would you be my help? You were David's help. Would you be my help? And finally, I just invite you to taste and see. The Lord is good. Stop looking for satisfaction in places that will not satisfy. No other human being no experience, even an amazing trip to Europe, no experience is going to satisfy your needs the way that Jesus can and wants to. So stop looking for it in other places. If you want to get wisdom, get Jesus. Get more and more of him. Ask for him to give you more of a hunger and more of a thirst. Constantly yield every part of yourself to him. I guarantee it's going to be good. I guarantee it's going to be good. Let's pray. God, I am hungry for more of you. I'm thirsty for more of you. I want to experience your power and your glory in the sanctuary with your people, also in the created world that you've made, also in relationships that are amazing and wonderful. But mostly, God, I want to find my satisfaction in you. God, give me a desire for more and more of you. And Lord, our world needs wisdom so desperately. They don't need rules. They need wisdom. In such a broken and messed up world, we are grieved by horrific, senseless things like mass shootings that happened the last couple days in the Midwest. God, we, we are, are out of answers in our own human strength. But we know that there is so, there's so much hope, no, so much peace and joy found in a relationship with you, God. Give us a hunger that is contagious that other people would be hungry and thirsty as well to say, how is that person so satisfied in God? I don't understand it. Give us hearts of wisdom so that we could fear you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.